Good morning, time now for the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on 2XX. And I'd like to say a little quick hello to the people on the moon because our station is broadcasting across to the moon and it, the signal will arrive in about a second. And later on, in fact, in about 3.7 minutes, our signal will be going past Mercury, six minutes past Venus, the sun in XX. And I'd like to say a little quick hello to the people on the moon because our station is broadcasting across to the moon and it, the signal will arrive in about a second. And later on, in fact, in about 3.7 minutes, our signal will be going past Mercury, six minutes past Venus, the sun in 8.3 minutes. And our astronomer has his eyebrows going up and down because he's wondering, did Rod allow for the fact that the planets go round and round the sun and they're not always the same distance from the Earth? Today, we are going across the universe. That's right, because we have an astrophysicist, Dr. Paul Francis from the Mount Stromlo Observatory and the Physics Education Centre at the ANU. Good morning, Phil. Uh, Paul. Did I call you Phil a moment ago? Paul. Good morning, Paul. Uh, good morning. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. <laughs> and we have a fuzzy logic regular, Eleanor. Good morning, Eleanor. Hi, Rod. How are you? Uh, good. And now... Paul, we had a column by you in the Canberra Times today. That's right, because we have an astrophysicist, Dr. Paul Francis, from the Mount Stromlo Observatory and the Physics Education Centre at the ANU. Good morning, Phil. Uh, Paul. Did I call you Phil a moment ago? Paul. Good morning, Paul. Uh, good morning. Pleasure, pleasure to be here. <laughs> and we have a fuzzy logic regular, Eleanor. Good morning, Eleanor. Hi, Rod. How are you? Uh, good. And now... Paul, we had a column by you in the Canberra Times today in our Ask Fuzzy regular feature, and it was about, the question was, where is the edge of the universe, and let's put the dark matter to the side for the moment, let's just talk about the edge of the universe. Is there such a thing? Uh, well, this is a bug me as a kid. I used to read about how the universe could be finite, there'd only be a certain amount of the universe. And if that was the case, you'd imagine you'd come to a big brick wall, if you flew far enough in your spaceship, we're marked edge of the universe, do not trespass. <laughs> and then what's on the other side of it, for Pete's sake? This used to bug me as a kid. Um, we currently believe the universe is infinite and has no edge, so you can just keep on going forever and keep finding more stuff. Um, if you keep going north far enough, you come all the way around the Earth and come back in from the south again. So if you can imagine a sort of four-dimensional analogue of that, you fly in any direction far enough if space really is curved, even though you've been going in a perfectly straight line, eventually you'd come back to where you started from from the other direction. So it, it, it's, it's finite, but it has no bounds. Well, that was one idea. We now currently believe that uh, the universe could have been like that, but we currently believe experimentally it seems to be infinite. Ah, it's such a counterintuitive concept, isn't it? I mean, we... <laughs> and then what's on the other side of it, for Pete's sake? This used to bug me as a kid. Um, we currently believe the universe is infinite and has no edge, so you can just keep on going forever and keep finding more stars and more planets. If it does have an edge like that, it, it will, it'll be like the surface of the Earth. Um, if you keep going north far enough, you come all the way around the Earth and come back in from the south again. So if you can imagine a sort of four-dimensional analogue of that, you fly in any direction far enough if space really is curved, even though you've been going in a perfectly straight line, eventually you'd come back to where you started from from the other direction. So it, it, it's, it's, and I could fly forever and ever and ever and never bump into the edge, like the wall you were describing. Did, how do you physicists cope with things that are <laughs> <laughs> that are so way out like this? 
I think you have your own language. I mean, I, I don't know how finances can cope with the concept of a billion dollars. I probably never will have to. Um, it's you just deal with it. People often ask me, why do you do all these amazing numbers, billions? And but we just, you know, it's four hundred megaparsecs. You never stop to think, you know, four hundred megaparsecs. Just how many kilometers is that? It's just <laughs> an absolutely colossal. Yeah. But we currently believe experimentally, it seems to be infinite. Ah, it's such a can counterintuitive concept isn't it I mean we, he was sitting in this room this studio has a wall uh, on four sides and a floor and a ceiling and I can imagine a boundary to that but a boundary to the universe you know like I could hop in my little aeroplane or my little spaceship and I could fly forever and ever and ever and never bump into the edge like the wall you were describing how do you physicists cope with things that are... <laughs> comes with, where did it come from? Answer, we don't know. What's it made of? Answer, we don't know. Where is it going? Answer, we don't know. Is there any life out there? Answer, we don't know. <laughs> so I'm not doing very well here. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of unknowns. A lot of unknowns there. We haven't quite finished the research yet. But then considering we're barely evolved monkeys living on an insignificant planet in the outskirts of a boring galaxy, to have the nerve to think we could even hope to understand the whole thing is pretty arrogant. Well, well I was giving the analogy earlier with uh, my chicken. My chicken on, on a page, isn't it, ultimately? Um, now, I, you, you know you've made it as an astronomer when you can say, that's a very young star, only 10 million years old, and not even notice you're saying something strange. Oh, <laughs> 10 billion, yeah, yeah nothing. Um, now, I, I was having a joke with you before the, we went to the program, and I sent you an email question that was on a, on, a, on a fake exam question, but I think I might throw it at you right now. And the question was... And you're locked in this little room. You've got five minutes to answer. Describe the universe. Give three examples. There's a way. It seems to be much the same. It's stars, galaxies, nebulae, dark matter, dark energy. And then if you go even further still, presumably it's the same, but we don't know, but we can't see it. Well, Paul, you mentioned before, just offhand, that we believe that the universe is infinite based on experimental evidence, or how, how do we possibly experiment on something that we have such a limited field of vision for? Well, what we're doing is extrapolating from what we can see. So what we can see is the extent to which space is curved, mm. which is definitely a concept. That what we can see is the extent to which space is curved, mm. which is definitely a concept that makes one's brains dribble out of <laughs> one's ears. Um, I mean, if space is curved, this is what I was talking about, how if you went in far enough from one direction, you'd come back to where you started from. I think it would be a great trap for Arnold Schwarzenegger because all these movies, they invent prisons for heroes and they always escape. But if you had a curved universe, for, say the radius of the radio studio, that'd be the perfect prison. Let's say... Uh, Terminator or Robocop blows a hole in one wall they shoot themselves in the back going through the other wall if they <laughs> knock a hole in the floor they come in through the roof and so on <laughs> but if it actually were a universe that was curved and that would do funny things to geometry for example the value of pi wouldn't be the same as 3.141592 if it's curved one way it would be less if it's curved the other way it would be more only on really big scales but you could in principle measure the value of pi and if it wasn't what scales but you could in principle measure the value of pi and if it wasn't what you thought it was on big scales you knew it would be curved and so what we can do is kind of indirectly measure these sort of things. So what you have to do is try and measure what pi is like on a scale of you know, a few billion light years by counting stars or something like that. And if the answer comes out wrong, that tells you the universe is curved. If it's curved one way, that means the universe should be finite. If it's curved the other way, it means it's even more than infinite. Right. Um, and as far as we can tell, it's within 1% of being flat. So it's actually pi is what it's supposed to be. And if the answer comes out wrong, that tells you the universe is curved. If it's curved one way, that means the universe should be finite. 
If it's curved the other way, it means it's even more than infinite. Right. Um, and as far as we can tell, it's within 1% of being flat. So it's actually, pi is what it's supposed to be, even on very, very big scales. So if we extrapolate that out, that will tell us we're living in an infinite universe. Wow. So uh, I mean, that, that may be very dangerous. Whenever you try and extrapolate anything beyond the where you can measure it, things mm. usually go horribly wrong. So it could be just beyond the observable universe where we can't see anymore. Wow. So uh, I mean, that, that may be very dangerous. Whenever you try and extrapolate anything beyond the where you can measure it, things mm. usually go horribly wrong. So it could be just beyond the observable universe where we can't see anymore. Uh, pi goes to seven or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> but just because you don't know. Now, um, you mentioned pi, but I was thinking at the same time of parallel lines. So in Euclid's geometry, parallel lines are parallel forever. Is that right? Yes. This space is curved. If it's a finite universe, parallel lines will eventually meet. If it's a more than infinite universe of parallel lines of <coughs> relativity, which is celebrating its 100th anniversary at the moment, is uh, the fundamental understanding of all these uh, so geometry of the universe. So now Einstein's revelation, his um, insight was that space itself has a shape, which is what we've just been talking about. Is that, so this is part of a general relativity, is that right? That's absolutely right. I get my students sometimes to do this. I ask them, just imagine you, you've got an art, incredibly intelligent computer in a box. It, it has no idea of, it's a, say, an artificial intelligence. How would you explain what space is to it? And they usually sort of say, well, space is like things being in different places. But then say, what is a place? So you don't know what a place is unless you know what space is. Or it's one thing's over there and over there. What does over there mean? It means a different place, a different space. So we kind of define it as... Because we live in a three-dimensional world, you need three numbers to describe where anything is, which might be you know, latitude, longitude, and height on Earth. And we need a rule. So let's say you've got something that's at position 1, 1, 1, and something else that's position 2, 2, 7. How far apart are they? And we have an equation which tells us if the numbers are close to each other. And we have an equation which tells us if the numbers are close to each other, they must be close. If the numbers are long apart, it's called Pythagoras' theorem. And what Einstein did was if you muck up that have a different sort of Pythagoras' theorem, then that means that that will effectively curve space. Uh, you kind of wonder how it's safe to get out of bed in the morning because, you know, <laughs> where, where's the floor, man? Because the space is curved and I don't know where the hell I'm... No, I, I, I well, the, the, the reason why you fall out of bed is because space is curved. <laughs> according to Einstein's theory, there's no such thing as gravity. Everything likes to follow its natural path, which is a straight line through curved space called a geodesic. And your straight, part, your geodesic path your, is, is to accelerate towards the centre of the Earth at 9.8 metres every second. Ah. So that's what you naturally want to do and as you're lying in bed your body wants to accelerate towards the middle of the earth but there's this pesky thing called a bed in the way that's pushing you up but if you sort of roll out of bed the bed's no longer there to stop you and so you can follow your geodesic and so while you're following your geodesic falling let's say your bed was very badly positioned near a window on a 10-story office building and you roll out in the morning um, you will then have uh, a few blissful seconds of following your natural motion and as you're following your natural motion it will feel weightless and very pleasant until unfortunately the, uh, the floor accelerates up to meet you <laughs> that was like that scene out of the Hitchhiker's Guide it's not where, where the whale is suddenly materialises in space near a planet and going oh there's an object I can see in the distance it's a big large blue thing oh it's beautiful it's round and it's curved and it's, it's heading towards me at a furious pace <laughs> now, um, now I have to say uh, for a bit of self brag here I went to the Einstein Museum a few months ago and in the uh, it's the top of a large building and they're like a warehouse converted of some sort and there's this staircase with all these mirrors at weird angles that's a really disorienting experience to walk through it and I was fascinated I spent more time staring into all these weird reflections and you could see 
it was like an Escher drawing. I could see myself from the top, from the side, and, and the stairs in all sorts of weird angles. Very, very disorienting. Let's go back to the universe for a moment. And so... That narrows it down. <laughs> which, which is where we are. We, we spend most of our time. Although I, I like to go out occasionally. Um, what, what's inside it? So we've got matter. We've got... What, what's the universe comprised of? Well, as far as we know, about a half a percent of the universe is made up of things we can see like stars and galaxies. Um, another three and a half percent or so is made up of normal matter, but we can't see it. Then about sort of twenty percent or so is made up of dark matter, whatever that is, and the remaining seventy or so percent is dark energy, whatever that is. So most of the universe is made up of dark energy and dark matter. The word "dark" in the title, when an astronomer says it, means we don't know what it is. <laughs> I mean, as in black box, to be defined or to be. It means we can't see it. Well, we we know enough to know that it's there, but we were having a conversation before we went live today, and you were saying. Well, a lot like you were a moment ago, a long list of unknowns. We're just really, well, probing in the dark. It's just like yeah. a wild guess. What, what do we know? Well, for dark matter, what we know is that if you look at things on the outskirts of galaxies, they're orbiting around the middle of the galaxy. And to make anything go in a circle, there has to be some force towards the middle, what's called a centripetal force. And you know how much the force is if you know how far something is going. Like if you're swinging a bucket around your head or something like that there has to be a, a port force towards the middle and same thing for a star orbiting a galaxy the normal idea is the weight of the galaxy its gravity pulls towards the middle and allows these things to go in circles but there's a problem you can work out how much pull there would have to be to keep these things going in circles and it's a lot bigger than the amount of mass that we can actually see there so the op options are either that we don't understand gravity very well or there's an awful lot more stuff in a galaxy than we can see and so the, at the moment, most people think it's probably just an awful lot more stuff. I mean, astronomy is the ultimate non-contact sport. You can look, but you can't touch. <laughs> but And so it, it shouldn't really be a surprise. There are things out in space that you can't see. For example, if you took all of us and put us in space, we wouldn't shine. We'd be dark matter. Hmm. So it could be that, for example, all the old radio presenters in the universe have been scattered <laughs> into the depths of space and are floating around. And that's they do an awful lot of them to make enough dark matter. Um, I, in my final undergraduate exam, the question was, if all old exam papers perform dark matter, how many would there need to be? <laughs> Turned out that can't work. They would block your line of sight distant quasars. So I was able to rule that theory out. So we need, some, we need something. There's been an awful lot of it. It mustn't shine. It must be transparent. Otherwise, it would block our view of distant things. But it should really be no surprise there could be large numbers of transparent, massive things out there. But the, but the exam papers do interact with other exam papers or, or with the stuff that we can see. And If there were that many exam papers, unless they were all lying perfectly, Perfectly edge on to our line of sight. Yeah. They would block out, which would be a bit of a coincidence. Uh, they would block our. We could see probably out to a distance of a, a few million light years. By the time we try to look a few billion light years, every line of sight would be blocked by an exam paper, or we'd see as a wall of paper in all directions. So, as as a chemist, I'm intrigued by this idea of there being matter that we can't see. Um, is there any sort of idea of what this transparent? stuff could be comprised of? Well, in the early days, there were lots of possibilities. And one possibility was that it was, for example, black holes. Mm. And maybe you produce large numbers of black holes just after the Big Bang, because why not? And they're all floating around in deep space. And if there are enough black holes out there, um, they won't shine. We wouldn't see them uh, because they're black, black on black, rather hard for a telescope to spot. Um, and so that could do it. Uh, probably that, that wouldn't work because we uh, we'd now know they were there because they 
would bend the light of more distant things. So most likely we think it's probably some weirdo subatomic particle. Cool. We know there's a particle called a neutrino, which can go through a million miles of lead without noticing. Neutrinos can't do it because their mass is a bit too low. But if there was something like a neutrino but a bit heavier... It's called a WIMP, a weakly interacting massive particle. Um, these things would be able to... They'd be flying for, through our bodies as we sit here right now and through your bodies as you listen right now. Millions of them have been flying through us. They go right through the other side without noticing. Um, in fact, they, there could even be planets made of these matter. If the matter could interact with itself, and there could be um, people made of this dark matter, and, and for them, we would be the dark matter. We would be the stuff they so could So there, there could be a dark, fuzzy logic uh, operating somewhere with some dark presenters in dark... It could be flying through this room at this very moment. Yeah. They wouldn't notice us, so we wouldn't notice them. <laughs> oh, do I feel a bit of extra gravity? <laughs> wow. Well, here on Fuzzy Logic, we are talking the big question, the nature of the universe. No less, but, you know, we've got some large brain here to help us with us. Associate Professor Paul Francis from the ANU. Let's let's bring it down to earth now because so uh, when we talk about the universe we just throw those terms around like you said parsecs and billions and blah 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 numbers we can't. Let's say I'm throwing a tennis ball right and it's a tennis ball there's two components. I throw the ball up into the air and oh there it goes and now it's coming down again. So there are two components there. One is the mass of the ball going up, and the other one is the force that's bringing it back down again. So could we bring perhaps dark matter and dark energy into that story? In principle, um, I mean, anything, if, you, if it's going slow enough, will come back down again. Um, it turns out there isn't very much dark matter around the Earth. So the density of the Earth is mostly normal matter. There probably is some dark matter flying through us. But it seems that the dark matter is actually far more spread out than the normal matter. So the normal matter is very concentrated in the middle 30,000 light years or so of the galaxy. It's another one of those big numbers again, I'm afraid. Sorry about it. <laughs> the universe is just a bit too big to be convenient. <laughs> Take it back, God. We want our money back. We want a smaller universe. We can get our brains around better. <laughs> we shall discipline it shortly. Um, but most of the dark matter is in the outskirts of the galaxy, out to maybe 100,000 light years. And so there's not that much here. Right, right here, when you throw balls up and down, it's the normal matter that dominates. But if you tried, instead of throwing a ball off the Earth, to throw the star out of the galaxy, in that case, it would be dark matter that's fighting you all the way uh, but what, what I was kind of getting at was just say the, that there was enough dark matter in the ball and enough dark energy around uh, my understanding is well maybe you should simplify it a little bit more say there was dark energy around I would throw the tennis ball up and it would come down faster or slower than it would have otherwise just due to gravity Dark matter wouldn't affect that. It behaves like other matter, so it'll come down exactly the same rate. It just weigh a bit more, and you have to push it a bit harder to throw it up. But if you threw it up at the same speed, it would come down the same amount. Dark energy is very different, though. Dark energy... We first discovered dark energy, or Brian Schmidt and his rivals first discovered dark energy, um, when they were looking at the expansion of space. So just if it wasn't big enough already, space is getting bigger. It's about one part in a uh, million, million, million per second. So it's a meter between you and me in the studio here. So now we've been talking for 10 seconds. It's now added one part in 10 to the 17 or 18, longer than it was before. So every bit of space in the universe is getting bigger. Um, this isn't actually why it's hard to get to work every day um, <laughs> that feels like it. I mean, the space between you and your work is getting bigger every day, but your work and you are generally bound together because you're attached to your house, which is attached to the earth, which is attached to the road, which is attached to your work probably. And so even though more space wells up between them, all those chemical bonds pull it back together again. 
But if you've got two things that are so far apart there are no bonds holding them together, like us in a distant galaxy, the extra space between us and them really does pull them apart. So if you pick a distant galaxy that's, say, 10 million light years away, then after a certain length of time it could be 11 million light years and then 12 and so on. Not because it's moving or we're moving, just there's more space opening up between us and it. And that's been known ever since uh, the 1920s. That was Edwin Hubble discovered that and led to the discovery of the mm, Big Bang. Mm. What was discovered with dark energy was that the rate at which space is expanding is getting faster. So maybe God's got a big dial and has turned it up to 11, and therefore the thing is getting faster and faster. Now, this is a bit puzzling. You'd normally expect the expansion of space to slow down because... Well, it's like, thing- a, it's like the tennis ball, which yes. slows as it gets towards so the So things apex. are being pulled apart because space is expanding, but on the other hand, you've got gravity, which is going to pull things back. And gravity sucks. It only pulls things. It never pushes. And so it can only ever slow things down and pull them back towards each other again. So if we want things to move further apart faster and faster and faster, you need something that pushes rather than pulls. And it has to be stronger than gravity. But if there's something that pushes and is stronger than gravity, why are we still sitting on the surface of the Earth? Wouldn't it push us up into space? Mm. So it's got to be something that, A, pushes rather than pulls, B, is stronger than gravity, but C, only works on big scales and not small scales where we could measure it. Um, And if that sounds like some sort of fudge, that's absolutely right. And what is this thing? Well, we don't know what it is, so we'll call it dark. Dark what? Well, is it a force? Is it a um, stuff? Um, the reason it's called dark energy is because one of the two teams that discovered it works for the US Department of Energy and they didn't have energy in the title they couldn't get funded. Uh. <laughs> so it's actually not at all clear it is energy. It could be just a force. Or a force or no, that, that's... some modification to the laws of space-time or something altogether weirder still. Now, the distinction between force and energy is, is a fairly subtle one and probably beyond a lot of people. We might pause on that question, back to dark energy, and I'd like to know about how the ripples of the dark energy the, of the... Nobel Prize Award and so on it went around the ANU and very exciting time on Fuzzy Logic you're with me Rod and Eleanor and Associate Professor Paul Francis from the ANU and here's some appropriate music wonder what uh, they're singing there Jai Karu Dave or sounds like some Indian I don't know anyway maybe uh, maybe we'll find out later uh, here on Fuzzy Logic because there's a lot of things we don't know the nature of the universe but we do know who our guest is our guest is Associate Professor Paul Francis from the ANU Mount Stromlo Observatory and Eleanor and some guy pressing the buttons Rod and we're talking about the universe and uh, now before we went to the track Paul, we were discussing the Nobel Prize. It must have been really exciting to have that come into the ANU and your colleague, uh, of course, Brian Schmidt. Yes, I think he's rather regretting having lost his life. Uh, We had him and Brian Cox both appearing as uh, um, interviews from the online astronomy course that we, Brian and I teach and the two of them are commiserating about what it was like to have a life beforehand and how it's totally gone away ever since the, one of them won the Nobel Prize and the one became a media superstar Well I guess there's a, there's a couple of levels, this one is how it affected Brian and yes, I can't I mean it sounds great, you know, I'm going to win this massive prize I'm going to have uh, celebrity status and so on, but it would really transform your life it must be very hard for 
uh, Brian to, uh, well, I guess he's now the Chancellor of the ANU, isn't he? He'll be starting as Vice-Chancellor on the 1st of January, so yeah. um, good luck to him. <laughs> so, but he won't be doing much research, I guess. I think not, no. He's, yeah. I think he's, he's decided that this uh, Nobel Prize gives him the ear of government he can hear. Ring up the Prime Minister and get an answer, which most scientists can't. And so he's been very strategic about how he uses the prestige of this to build contacts and try and advance yes. the uh, case for science in Australia and particularly for science education, which is his main focus. That uh, um, we know the parlour state of science education in many schools, and so he's been pushing very hard to improve that. Yes, and, and having met him, I know how, how deeply committed he is to that. But uh, it must bring a lot of prestige to the ANU Mount Stromlo Observatory as well, uh, just having the name that you can use. Uh, so that's a, that's a fantastic thing. Let's move on now to talk about the sounds of the universe, uh, Paul, because when I was looking you up for the, the show today, uh, I came across some interesting audio that you had generated. Uh, so I'm going to play it now. But uh, just quickly before I do, uh, this one's called Nebula. What What, what is it? Well, what's... What astronomers do most of the time is not take pretty pictures of space, but take what are called spectra, which is where we take the light and break it up into its component wavelengths. And that's actually about 70% of what we do, but it gets almost no media coverage because by the time you've explained on the newspaper article that light comes in waves and have different wavelengths, so you can work out how much there are, you've lost the audience. So what I thought I'd try is... The human eye can't really perceive wavelengths very much. We just see three wavelengths, blue, red, and green. But the human ear can perceive hundreds and hundreds of different frequencies. And that's the difference between a cello and a, a music and something like this. So I thought maybe we, instead of trying to display these spectra as a squiggly black line on a piece of paper, I would turn them into sounds. Because the human ear is a natural spectrograph. So what I did was I took spectra of things like nebulae and quasars and galaxies and I changed the frequency a bit because the real frequency is far too high for the human ear to hear but I brought the frequency down about a billion times and then turned them into sounds so let's imagine you could take the electromagnetic radiation and turn it into sound radiation this is what a nebula would sound like so this is real data I took myself it's beautiful stuff it's beautiful stuff here it is in fact It sounds like the introduction to a science fiction movie. It's like I just see the opening scene. That was a bit weird to me because having come up with the sound, it's the fact that it sounded like science fiction movies is just spooky coincidence. <laughs> it is. It's, it's quite eerie, isn't it? And, and it's like we're hovering in our spaceship over the alien planet. You know, we're looking down. There's there's some very strange things going on. Can you describe what actual meaning can we interpret from this? Okay, well, you're hearing a sort of sort of sound. The different pictures you're hearing are, are spectral lines due to different elements. Um, and so there was a sort of wobbling sound earlier, which is due to oxygen, which has lost two electrons. We're now hearing a much more muddled noise. This is actually due to hydrogen. And this is hydrogen that's moving very fast, swirling around a black hole. And the fast motion gives it the sort of very vague, bumpy sort of sound to it. It's, oh, it's feeling unsteady and... Uh, Insecure, and that's because it's moving so fast, interfering with itself in funny ways. And just, just listen again for a second. And now you're hearing a high-pitched noise, and that's actually due to oxygen again and some more hydrogen clouds out in space. 
there's multiple things going on there. There's waves within waves. There's peaks and troughs. And this there's, is a guy. It's like a, a, a tremolo left. almost, isn't it? Oh, well, now we've jumped to the next one. This is called uh, NGC292 Assembled. Yes, we, we've, we've got to a new sound effect now. Yeah, this is um, a particular nebula and uh, the sound of different parts of it as you zoom in on it. And Here's so, what the signals from the Eskimo Nebula sound like. It's called the Eskimo Nebula. I don't know why. It's, it's like a, a large, you know, one of those symbols or, you know, um, a gong thing, you know, yes. a brass thing, and you're, and you're running a, uh, a cloth um, thing around. You, you, you're vibrating the disc. And uh, let's go on to the comet one then. This is a comet as it's a long way out from the sun, so it's reflecting sunlight. This is more or less what a spectrum of sunlight would sound like, which is a because it's and now as it gets close to the sun, it starts to melt and gas starts to flow out, form the tail, and this gas is now producing um, spectral lines, particular elements. And as it gets closer and closer to the sun, new elements and molecules appear, and the sound changes. So this is light being converted into sound. That's right. It's a spectrograph, and the spectrograph shows you the amplitude of the sound of, of the of the light mm. at any given frequency. Like a, a rainbow, in fact, is a, is a spectrograph, isn't it? Yes. Or if you take the back of a CD, if you have one of those things from before the days of MP3 players, and you reflect the light off that, you can see the rainbow colour on that. That's a spectrograph. Uh, and if you do that to a fluorescent light, you'll see instead of being a whole range of rainbows, there's only a few particular bands of colour. Yes. And that's that's what the comet's like here. It's producing only a few particular bands of colour which we're turning into a few particular frequencies of sound. And you can tell what it's made of because what's missing, the little little spectral emission lines or whatever they call yeah, it. Yeah, particular spectral lines show up, tell you what it's made out of. OK, now we jump to the final one. This is labelled QSO. This is a quasar. So this is a gas around a giant black hole. We're a long way out now. We're looking at the galaxy. We're flying through a galaxy. So what you're hearing is the different sorts of stars. The low rumble will be the red giant stars and the high hiss will be the white dwarf stars. And then as we get close towards the middle, we start seeing the glowing gas caused by the giant black hole, which we start hearing the... You just about hear that. Now we're, now we're entering the nebula around the black hole. That sounds like a peal of bells or something. So we've got some pure tones coming through there. Yep, this is primarily uh, oxygen and hydrogen tones we're picking up. The translation I used was hydrogen alpha line to, eight, to middle C. <laughs> And now we're going closer in, and now we're getting like the choir of angels. This is now, as we get closer in, the gas is, has different, it's very ionised. Intense radiation from the quasar is zapping the gas and making it behave in different ways. It's also been to move around much faster. And that causes the increase and decrease in sound, like almost like waves coming on a sea. So we really are listening to the universe. I know it's, it's, it's light converted to sound, but we are, in a sense, listening to the universe here. This is... This is primal stuff here on Fuzzy Logic. This is infinitely better than looking at spectra. I can say that for sure. It's it's it's. A, how, do, how does it make you feel when you when you hear this, Paul? Does it does it does it resonate with you? Pardon the term. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting sound. I, I heard, thought originally it might be actually quite useful that maybe you could interpret this sort of stuff. And I can actually listen to one of these things and work out how far away something is just from the pictures of it. But in practice, for most practical purposes, you're better off with a piece of paper on pencil. So the human ear doesn't um, 
if you hear several different spikes in a spectrum, the human ear birds it into one melodious sound rather than saying a line there, a line there, a line there. The eye is much better at pulling things apart, unfortunately. So it's more of an aesthetic appreciation rather it than... It is. I'd hoped it might be useful, a, a, but uh, it turned out it's just fun. Now, you were saying before the show that uh, various artists and so on have, have contacted you and they've used this audio in, in this sort of different ways. What? What's, I, can, I can definitely tell that would be really good for a soundtrack or for some music and so on. It actually used a lot of artistic installations. So people will often have um, visual arts in an installation. They're playing this as background music over as part of it. So it's certainly been exhibited in, uh, I think, about 15 cities around the world, things you, by different artists using these soundtracks. It's, it's beautiful stuff. It's beautiful stuff. Now, we might just break to a track. In fact, this one is called East Ghost, East Ghost, East Coast Girl. That's uh, Eleanor, you, you, you've chosen this one for us. Any particular reason? <laughs> oh, it's just nice and summery, like the weather outside. Um, here's the track. Fuzzy Logic. Oh, yes, a bit of funky music there. We're all dancing around the studio here on Fuzzy Logic 2XX, and we are travelling the universe with our guest, Associate Professor Paul Francis from the ANU, Mount Stromlo Observatory. And uh, we have a dire announcement to make here on Fuzzy Logic. We have just noticed a lump of rock heading our way. The Earth is going to be obliterated by a killer asteroid, Paul. What is that a really reasonable, realistic scenario? Yes. <laughs> oh dear. Unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> by some calculations, your odds of being killed by an asteroid are worse than your odds of being killed by a terrorist. Hmm. Um, it's a, one of those rather dubious calculations. Uh, but terrorists kill what? A few hundred people every year. Killer asteroid will hit once every 10 million years, might kill several billion people. So in terms of people per year, that actually ends up as more than are killed by terrorists or air crashes or anything like this. Uh, so it's infrequent but really big. Yes. Yeah, so what do you do about something? I mean, if you're a politician, something that's very, could be very, very bad but has a very low chance of happening. If you're a politician, of course, what you do is ignore it. But by many calculations, it's one of the bigger risks that face us. Things like the very rare but very bad things like an astro- a big asteroid hitting the Earth or a giant volcanic eruption or some huge plague. Odds are very small, but it could be really, really bad if it happens. Yeah, it would really spoil your day. Hey? <laughs> um, but we do spoil know... Spoil your millennium. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, well, that's right. Well, dinosaurs, 65 million years ago, we think... Yeah. Uh, I mean, they... we know that big asteroids do hit the Earth. We know that the one that hit the dinosaurs. Uh, we know that um, the, that was the last really big one that happens. We think on average they probably hit every 20 million years or so, so we're actually well overdue for another one of that sort of size. <laughs> Smaller ones hit the Earth all the time. There was the one that uh, exploded in the air over Chelyabinsk in Russia yes. last year or the year before. Yeah. Oh, and Tunguska as well in 19... The last big one was in 1908 in the stony Tunguska River in Siberia, which destroyed several hundred square kilometres of pine forest. If that had landed on New York, millions of people would have died. Luckily, no one lives in that part of Siberia. Mm. One of the big worries is some of the small ones, things maybe the size of a few metres... Um, they generally burn up in the atmosphere. Bigger ones, maybe 30 metres across, could destroy a city, and they probably land on average somewhere on Earth every 100 years or so. The big risk for them is that they could be mistaken for an incoming ballistic missile. Let's say one of those things landed on Moscow. What are the odds the Russians would think they'd be nuked by somebody and fire their nukes back? Uh. And several times during the Cold War, people mistook uh, asteroids coming in for ballistic missiles and nearly triggered nuclear war. So okay, but then they get the really bigger ones, and the continent-busting ones, maybe a few hundred meters across. And, and um, we, we know one of them, for example, landed somewhere in the t- in the sea between uh, New South Wales and um, 
New Zealand and sent a tidal wave that washed over all sorts now Sydney. You can see the remains of the tidal wave in the gap in Sydney. Wow. So this is before human habitation of the area, or at oh, least okay, record, records. So, um, uh, but if another one landed today, it could be a very bad time to be on Bondi Beach. <laughs> So, so the, the average shooting star is really it's just a speck of dust, it's a grain of sand, isn't That's it? right. Most of them are tiny, uh, often so small you wouldn't see them with the human eye. Um, it's the rare big ones that are particularly at risk. Well, we, we, we know that they're out there because, well, we can see them, we can track them with our telescopes, so on, but also you can see where they've smacked the side of a planet. In fact, didn't one hit, uh, was it Jupiter a couple of years ago? Uh, yes, uh, they hit Jupiter quite regularly. There was a big one, Shoemaker-Levy 9, that hit Jupiter back in the 1990s. It broke up to pieces and one after another it crashed into Jupiter. Um, another one hit the moon all the time. Amateur astronomers often see flashes of the moon. Really? Because of, um, for a long time, the professionals didn't believe them because we could never see it. But if you do look off enough, you do see a flash every now and then a new crater appears on the moon when something hits it. On Earth, generally speaking, they don't do that because they usually burn up in the atmosphere unless they're pretty big and the big ones are rare. But we certainly know big ones land quite often. Uh, the last time anybody was... Um, there was an asteroid that landed in um, Egypt and killed a dog... <laughs> uh, in the um, uh, late 19th century the last person hurt by an asteroid apart from the Encheliabinsk was an American woman who was sitting watching TV in the 50s she actually lived opposite the Comet drive-in theatre which is a bit spooky and a meteorite came through her roof uh, bounced off her radio destroyed her TV and then landed on her leg bruising her slightly I've actually seen a photo of that and she's revealing her midriff and she's got a wedge-shaped bruise uh, across her which so she got off pretty lightly, really. That that would have been quite small. We were talking about that last week on Fuzzy because it was uh, the anniversary of that having happened last Sunday. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Really? Yep. Wow. So it, it it could have been a lot worse. Now th- this. But the big ones are the real risk, and they're they're rare. And what we've been trying to do is map all the asteroids that might potentially hit the Earth. We now know there are probably nothing bigger than a kilometer that's on a collision course. There's one asteroid that's uh, it's could possibly hit the Earth 800 years from now. Somebody Um, else's problem. Indeed, yes. Um, As we map its orbit more precisely, we'll learn for sure. Um, But of course, we're a politician, we ignore it for 799 years and then panic. But um, we don't know and haven't mapped all the smaller ones. So the ones that are two, 300 metres across, we've probably mapped 30 or 40% of them, but there are a lot of them out there that we haven't mapped. The trouble is they're so small, we can only see them when they get very close. And by then it's probably too late. And do their orbits get a bit erratic so that's hard to predict how they might get a little nudge from something and then sort of drift? They drift us? slowly, but that's not something to worry about. What we don't, The trouble is we can only see them when they get pretty close to us. So what we have to wait is as we go around the sun, we get a view of the bits that are close to us. And as time goes on, we might start mapping these things out. So you just have to keep going year after year, map all these things, try and calculate their orbits. And then most, the 99.999% are never going to come near the Earth. And look at the other 1.01% and then try and get better and better measurements and see, yeah, 400 years from now it might come close, 600 years it might come close. It's a great, it's a great premise for a science fiction movie, isn't well, it? You know, what you're going to do in your last two days before you get splattered by a meteor. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's one of the sci-fi tropes. Is I mean, is there any intervention if we do see something flying towards us? What, what can we do? It depends how much time you've got um, if you've got decades then what you need to do is uh, divert the asteroid and probably you're going to get decades of warning for these things That's so good. in that case you have to steer it sideways and you don't have to steer it sideways very much if you've got 30 years of notice a very very small nudge will make it miss us um, so for example one way you could do this is just paint half the asteroid white 
because the sunlight bounces off the white half as opposed to the dark half it applies a slightly different pressure to it and will nudge it very slightly sideways that will be enough if you've got decades of warning so you, instead of sending Bruce Willis up there with an atom bomb you actually send him up with a very big spray can and paint half of it white <laughs> yeah. or you could just have your spacecraft hover near it and the spacecraft's gravity will put it ever so slightly sideways I think is there a mission at the moment that's uh, just trying to experiment to see what happens when they nudge one? Uh, um, NASA have been talking about it. It hasn't actually been launched yet. They, oh, okay. they, they are talking about trying to actually rendezvous with a really small one, like maybe only a few metres across, and then have a space tug that will bring it back to Earth orbit so the asteroids can, astronauts can visit it. So uh, Bruce Willis packing a nuke. Uh, that would turn one, one asteroid that's going to hit us into a collection of radioactive asteroids that are going to hit us. <laughs> so instead of seeing a single bomb, be a cluster bomb. So probably do more harm than good. Okay, so don't don't do that. I mean, we, we what you might want to do is set off atom bombs just near the side, nudge it sideways. It doesn't hit us. But there is an interesting philosophical debate about this. For every asteroid that's going to hit the Earth, but could be nudged so it narrowly misses there'll be a million asteroids that are going to narrowly miss the Earth that could be nudged in to hit us if you were evil enough. Yeah. So for every one asteroid that... If we develop the technology to nudge asteroids sideways, yeah. for every one asteroid that you can make us safe from, there are going to be a million you can make us more dangerous from. So do you really believe that humans are good to one part in a million? If there's even a one in a million chance that humans would misuse the technology, maybe we're better off not developing it. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the conversation we had at our science week when uh, Clive Hamilton was talking about geoengineering the climate. And, you know, there's even talk, you know, it's pretty mad talk, really, that we can modify the weather in some way. But you could use it as a, as a weapon. Is that kind of where you're going with this one? Yes. I mean, I think people are far more likely to use it for good than bad. But really, one in a million times better than good than bad. I think humans are probably more like one in a thousand times Maybe yeah. even one in a hundred likely to use it for yeah. evil rather than yeah. good. And so on those sort of odds, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. Well, one of our favourite philosophical questions to debate after a few beers is if you found out an asteroid was, was careening towards Earth and there was no chance of diverting it, no chance of saving anyone, would you tell anyone or would you just let everyone live in, in blissful ignorance until it was all over? Well, I guess that's, that's, <laughs> that's a question that uh, someone with a, a terminal disease faces, isn't it? Uh, you know, that, that's all a bit gloomy here on, 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 on a sunny Sunday. We, <laughs> we, get, we don't have a happy day. Uh, th- th- this I think there are much bigger risks to the Earth than meteorites, though, I'd say. Yeah. Even just naturally, I think the megavolcanoes are more likely to cause problems, and I think that by far the most dangerous thing to humans is other humans. Mm. Oh, abs- absolutely, and, and so many of us as well. Uh, so that was the voice of uh, Associate Professor Paul Francis. In fact, you've got, got a few more uh, minutes with Paul because uh, here on Fuzzy Logic we're talking about the origin of the universe and other minor things like that. Now, let's talk about go back to the origin of things because and asteroids and bits of junk left around. The creation of the solar system is a pretty messy business, right? So this, these bits of crap floating around this place, uh, it's all the junk left over from when the solar system was formed. Is that correct? Yes, we think the solar system formed from a giant cloud of gas in space, and this gas cloud shrank as every part of it attracted every other part from gravity until it ended up as a spinning disk of gas. And some of the gas worked its way to the middle and formed the sun, and in the out parts, little lumps of rock and grains of dust stuck together and stuck and stuck and stuck and got bigger and bigger until they were things the size of your fist orbiting around, and they would collide with each other and stick until they got things the size of a combi van, and then they would smash into one another until they end up with things the size of, I don't know, a black mountain. And slowly these things would smash together <coughs> at the era of carnage as all these lumps smash into one another until eventually you end up with only a few very big lumps 
with lots of empty space between them called planets. Well, things things tend to spin too. I, I think of it as being like two ice skaters coming together. They they, they skate across the, um, uh, the the rink and then they grab hands. And what will they do? As soon as they grab hands, they'll start to spin, won't they? There's something really fundamental about the tendency of things to spin, and at the whole galaxy level as well. That's right. That the um it's called the conservation of angular momentum and uh, means that if things are spinning, they will keep spinning. If things get smaller, they have to spin faster. Like my kids have done those spinning round things at playgrounds. So if they stick their legs out and then bring them in, they spin faster and faster. And so we think that's what happened. We had the original cloud of gas was spinning very slowly. As it shrank and became smaller and smaller, um, the amount of spin was the same. So it had to spin faster to compensate for its smaller size. And so that ended up why these things were spinning. Now, what, what about comets? Because uh, comets have been in the news a bit in science recently because there's an amazing European mission to put the little lander, the Philae lander, on that uh, comet. Churyumov, Gerasimov, like, or something like that. I can't even Russian, pronounce it properly. Some Russian name. Yep. That's, a, that's a pretty amazing uh, development. What have we learnt from that, do you think? Well, we knew very little about comets until maybe 30, 40 years ago. We didn't even know there was something as solid in the middle of these things. We never really had much of a close look. We've now flown past about four or five of these things. So what we're trying to learn is what this... The normal idea is that the middle of a comet is a dirty snowball. Mm. Um, it's some sort of mixture of tar and rock and various sorts of ices, like frozen water, frozen carbon dioxide, frozen methane, things like this. And this is our first real close-up of these things. Because we didn't know how dense they were. It's quite possible their density was so low that they were like polystyrene. I often think they're probably the best analogy of these things is a, uh, a pavlova, ah. a mixture of organic stuff and very lightweight, very low density. Maybe if Bruce Willis tried to land on one of these things, he'd just sink up to his knees in it. <laughs> it just, just puffed straight through. Instead, the problem was that they bounced off because the gravity is so light on these things. The spacecraft landed and just bounced straight off. It was supposed to fire harpoons in to hold it down, and they didn't work. And so the thing bounced off and ended up stuck in a crater somewhere else. So the gravity on the sort is so light that you couldn't walk on it. You just accidentally sneeze and you'd go into orbit. Uh, yes, I've seen I've seen the pictures of this thing. It's absolutely amazing. I, I just think it's incredible that we can do these things. It looks like a peanut or two big blobs with a little thin neck joining them. Mm -hmm. And they're also measuring the stream of particles of stuff coming off the back of it as well. Uh, and yes, because it's now melting as it comes close to the sun. The and so tail. they're now actually trying to see how the stuff gets out. Um, the other thing is about comets are almost perfectly jet black we think because they've got a thick layer of some sort of organic tar on the surface so they're actually trying to measure what this organic tar is they're trying to measure what's below the surface how does the stuff get out is it melting in the middle and then it's got a like a crust like some burnt pavlova in your oven again with a black crust on the outside but still nice and gummy and icy in the middle um, so these are the sort of questions they're trying to answer yes it's, it's, it's amazing stuff now You've been involved in uh, different ways of delivering science uh, education, training or learning to, to people, the so-called MOOCs. And uh, we did a panel with uh, the uh, with Brian Schmidt and a few other people uh, a while back. Uh, a MOOC, it's a, uh, a, an acronym, of course. It stands for Massive Open Online Course. Yes, and so this is a way, it's basically just an online correspondence course. <laughs> Is that what it is? Yes, so it's a course that's free for anyone to take. So if you're interested in learning more about astronomy, you can sign up for free and do the four, the four courses that me and Brian Schmidt taught. There's one on Great Unsolved Mysteries of the Universe, one on Exoplanets, one on the Violent Universe, and one on Cosmology, like we've been talking about today. And um, they've been taken so far by about 170,000 people around the world. 
and uh, mostly from overseas, actually. The biggest number are from the US and then India. We've got people logging on from oil rigs in the Persian Gulf. And, really? Uh, one, one guy from Paraguay records he's the only person in the whole country who's interested in astronomy, so he's <laughs> so keen he's found these online courses. Uh, and it, one guy it, from rural Mexico who had to stop doing one of his homework assignments because he just had the one annual water delivery, so he had to go and have a shower because it was the only chance he got all year to have a shower. So he said, wow. it's interesting. There's all these rural areas in the third world. They have internet but no water. Wow, that's amazing. So uh, is what motivating these people is just simple curiosity? Are they looking for work? Why, why, why are they doing these courses? Mostly I think it's curiosity. We've got a lot of retired people looking to learn, keep their brains active. We've got... Uh, um, a lot of people who are interested in getting, maybe getting a job as an ast- astronomer and want to try it out. Uh, but mostly it's just general interest, I think. And uh, so y- you find that uh, there's, there's a natural curiosity about space. and you know, People that are inherently, they just want to know this stuff. Is that how you find it? Um, we, might, uh, we might move on to uh, what's coming up in fuzzy logic. So uh, we've got... Uh, plans haven't we Eleanor we always we're always planning <laughs> we're, we're always planning now today's Ask Fuzzy is of course about the edge of the universe and so check the Canberra Times Fairfax Media for that uh, I'm writing one at the moment on aerodynamics what's the most aerodynamic shape Hmm. Uh, we were debating this the other night, weren't we? We, we were debating this. And actually, we, we were talking about raindrops, Eleanor. <laughs> uh, and there's a common misconception. Do you want to pick me up on the, on the common misconception? Well, I think of, of certainly when you're, when you're uh, you know, seven or eight years old and you're drawing a rainstorm, you, you tend towards the nice little teardrop shapes. But uh, surface tension basically says that spheres are, are the go. Um, so anything, anything liquid that's falling from the sky is probably mostly spherical rather than a big teardrop shape so it's a, it's a little wobbly ball oh and which kind of quickly back to a quick uh, universal question is the universe roughly spherical do we think that 13.8 billion years well, the part like we can see is spherical because we can only see that distance from all directions from us the universe as a whole though is infinite so i don't know what shape infinity is <laughs> the shape you like probably ah so the question doesn't make sense no you can only say the shape of an edge if there's no edge you can't define a shape ah uh, there you go I, I, i'm i'm going to have to take something to modify my consciousness next time we come on here because this is this is mind-bending stuff now uh, before we wind up i want to talk a little bit about uh, wombats because uh, last couple of weeks on our in our column we've been uh, uh, tackling the difficult subject of wombats the what we used to call the common wombat is now had to be renamed the bare-nosed wombat and katie and i went out to the wombat sanctuary which is near gundaroo and uh, have a look at sleepyburrows.com I think it's .au and there they've got about I don't know 30 or 40 wombats that they're looking after ones that have been hit by cars and so on and the wombat mange is a real scourge and it is a really, really nasty disease. Have you seen a dog with with the mange? I've been lucky enough to avoid that. Yeah, it's uh, basically it's a mite and it burrows into the skin and they lose their hair, they grow big sores on the outside and they die a miserable death. And so the wombat mange is, is running through the native population and uh, Donna from the sanctuary told us about what people do to wombats which makes me very sad to be a human when I hear the sorts of stories that she tells and I recorded a short interview with her and we'll be bringing that to you on Fuzzy Logic at a few maybe over the Christmas break 
That could be a good plan. Yep. And uh, you can become a Wombassator to help out our poor wombats. And if you find one, uh, give this people at Sleepy Burrows a call because they are very dedicated. And there was one, Katie and I went to one pen, and uh, Phil, who's, who's the other half of the operation, and he called it. And this thing appeared from its burrow and, and it wobbled out and, and it was so cute and it was so adorable. And it came and nuddled our knees and everything and it followed us around. And then I was interviewing and this little thing like the size of a kitten skittered across the floor. And, then it, and it chewed Katie's shoes and it chewed my shoes and back across the floor again. Uh, absolutely beautiful. 